Dredge's hypothesis will be contested, may one day be disproved, but at least it has swept out of the way all previous conjectures, including, of course, Lanfear's magnificent attempt. And for our generation of scientific investigators, it will serve as the first safe bridge across a murderous black whirlpool. It's all very interesting. There are few things more stirring to the imagination than that sudden projection of the new hypothesis, light as a cobweb and strong as steel, across the intellectual abyss. But for an idle observer of human motives, the other, the personal side of Dredge's case, is even more interesting and arresting. Personal side? You didn't know there was one. Pictured him simply as a thinking machine, a highly specialized instrument of precision, the result of a long series of adaptations, as his own jargon would put it? Well, I don't wonder, if you've met him. He does give the impression of being something out of his own laboratory, a delicate scientific instrument that reveals wonders to the initiated and is absolutely useless in an ordinary hand. In his youth, it was just the other way. I knew him twenty years ago as an awkward lout whom young Archie Lanfear had picked up at college and brought home for a visit. I happened to be staying at the Lanfears when the boys arrived, and I shall never forget Dredge's first appearance on the scene. You know, the Lanfears always lived very simply— that summer, they had gone to Buzzard's Bay in order that Professor Lanfear might be near the biological station at Woods Hole, and they were picnicking in a kind of sketchy bungalow without any attempt at elegance. But Galen Dredge couldn't have been more awestruck if he'd been suddenly plunged into a Fifth Avenue ballroom. He nearly knocked his shock head against the low doorway and, in dodging this peril, trod heavily on Mabel Lanfear's foot and became hopelessly entangled in her mother's draperies. Though how he managed it I never knew, for Mrs. Lanfear's dowdy muslins ran to no excessive train. When the professor himself came in, it was ten times worse, and I saw then that Dredge's emotion was a tribute to the great man's proximity. That made the boy interesting, and I began to watch. Archie, always enthusiastic but vague, had said, Oh, he's a tremendous chap. You'll see. But I hadn't expected to see quite so clearly. Lanfear's vision, of course, was sharper than mine, and the next morning he had carried Dredge off to the biological station, and that was the way it began. Dredge is the son of a Baptist minister. He comes from East Lethe, New York State, and was working his way through college, waiting at White Mountain Hotels in summer, when Archie Lanfear ran across him. There were eight children in the family, and the mother was an invalid, Dredge never had a penny from his father after he was fourteen, but his mother wanted him to be a scholar and kept at him, as he put it, in the hope of his going back to teach school at East Lethe. He developed slowly, as the scientific mind generally does, and was still adrift about himself and his tendencies when Archie took him down to Buzzard's Bay. But he had read Lanfear's 
utility and variation, and had always been a patient and curious observer of nature, and his first meeting with Lanfear explained him to himself. It didn't, however, enable him to explain himself to others, and for a long time he remained, to all but Lanfear, an object of incredulity and conjecture. Why, my husband wants him about? Poor Mrs. Lanfear, the kindest of women, privately lamented to her friends. For Dredge, at the time, they kept him all summer at the bungalow, had one of the most encumbering personalities you can imagine. He was as inexpressive as he is today, and yet oddly obtrusive, one of those uncomfortable presences whose silence is an interruption.' 